Welcome to Local Bites, the podcast of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. In this show, we'll be featuring critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement for localization. Welcome to Local Bites, tracking the rise of localist movements and ideas from around the world. I'm Brian Emerson. Today's topic Local Alternatives to Globalized Development, a view from India. In the early 1990s, the Indian government embraced economic globalization, opening its borders to foreign investors and flows of global capital. Since that time, India has undergone a process of rapid transformation. It has one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Industrial development is booming. Urbanization is occurring at an astonishing pace and more and more Indian citizens are gaining access to the global consumer middle class. But as our guest will argue, the social and environmental costs of India's pursuit of economic growth and development have been truly staggering, ultimately outweighing the benefits and highlighting the urgent need for a shift in direction towards more localized economic activity, decentralized governance, and what he calls radical ecological democracy. Our guest is Indian scholar and activist Ashish Kotari. Kotari is a founding member of the environmental group Kalpa Briksh. He has taught at the Indian Institute of Public Administration and coordinated India's National Biodiversity Strategy and Action Plan. He has authored and edited over 30 books, including Churning the Earth, The Making of Global India, co-authored with Asim Srivastava. He has also been active with various people's movements throughout India. Local Bites co-producer Alex Jensen joined me to interview Ashish Kotari. We recorded this interview with Ashish while he was in Delhi earlier this month. Ashish Kotari, welcome to Local Bites. Thank you. So to start, much of your work over the years has focused on globalization in India, both on the impacts of globalization as well as grassroots alternatives to it. In the beginning of your book, you trace the origins of globalization and lay out its basic architecture. Globalization is a complicated process with many facets, but to get us started, I wonder if you could define for our audience in very general terms, what is globalization? There's a common misconception that uh, people like us are against globalization per se. So we have carefully tried to distinguish two different kinds of globalization. Uh, one is something that's been happening for thousands of years, which is people and uh, cultures and ideas and materials uh, being exchanged amongst uh, different indigenous peoples, local communities, countries of the world. This has been happening for a long, long time. If you look at any of our, uh, you know, agriculture or food or uh, products or ideas in any, any country, uh, there's been some influence or the other from somewhere else. The form of globalization that we actually talk about and critique in the book is a much more recent phenomenon of uh, capital and finance and those with those who hold the powers over capital and finance being able to uh, go virtually anywhere in the world and uh, invest or use their finance for activities which earn them profits. And it's also a form of globalization which actually is aided by nation states who uh, have sort of increasingly gone uh, in that sense hand in glove with the uh, with those who hold finance and capital um, to enable them to actually move around the world. Uh, 
Um, so if you look at the last maybe two or three decades, it's the first time in history that somebody could be sitting in New York or Washington and at the click of a button could be buying land uh, a few thousand miles away or taking decisions on investments uh, which are affecting people and the environment a few thousand miles away without in any way actually consulting with or even knowing about those people and, the, and that environment. So that's, uh, I mean, very simply put, the economic or financial globalization, which has overtaken the world uh, in the last maybe two or three decades. Maybe I should also just sorry, additionally add here is that there is a there's a, another backdrop to this, which has enabled this to happen, which is the globalization of what progress and development means. So if you look at post-World War II um, and the attempts to rebuild uh, Europe and the U.S. Uh, and, and do that through actually exporting the idea of economic development across the world as if that's the one model by which people will become better, better off. Uh, so the the global reach of a single monocultural model of human progress in the name of development, uh, that is the sort of larger context of the financial globalization which has been happening. So uh, we put both of these two together. So the subtitle of Churning the Earth is The Making of Global India. Um, we wanted to turn to the impacts of globalization in India in a moment, but maybe first, if you could give listeners a bit of the history about how India in particular has globalized, maybe starting, you know, even as far back as the colonial history and moving us through more recent periods, such as economic liberalization in the 90s and even today, what are the processes of globalization in India? Yes, the I guess the colonial period uh, from the 18th century onwards is the uh, not I shouldn't say the beginning, but the sort of first big big uh, impact from outside India on the land and resources uh, and economic structures uh, and livelihoods and, uh, and governance of the country. Um, so in that sense, the um, the roots of the nation state are laid at at that point in time, the roots of much of our current governance models, the bureaucratic structures, uh, the, the kind of laws that we have, the centralization of power uh, and so on are also laid during that uh, colonial uh, period. One example of that, for instance, is the, uh, the way forests are managed. Uh, earlier, they were mostly in the hands of local communities or local rulers. Uh, and uh, today, uh, as a result of the colonial takeover of much of India's forests, they are centrally managed by a bureaucracy. So that's, uh, in that sense, that's the kind of beginning of the, uh, the way in which uh, economic and political governance uh, take, is happening. Uh, but then we have independence in 1947 and uh, post-independence, uh, there are both discontinuities and continuities from the colonial period. I won't go into that too much. But essentially, a model of uh, state-centered governance and uh, in the 1960s onwards, a model of industrialization and um, infra large-scale infrastructure development as being the model of development or the model of progress. Um, that's uh, what we see post-independence. There is an attempt to be explicitly to be a socialist republic, um, a welfare republic, so that the state is supposed to be doing, is supposed to be governing on behalf of people. Um, the bureaucrats, for instance, are called uh, public servants uh, and so on. And there are some benefits or some uh, merits to that uh, attempt to be socialist, which is the building up of uh, fairly large scale infrastructure and 
social welfare schemes and things like that. But on the other hand, uh, that centralization of power in the state, nation state is also, uh, it also means that there is continued disempowerment of people, which started in colonial times and continued after independence. For instance, in the management of natural resources or in self-governance. And uh, also the uh, emphasis on large-scale industrial development, um, which uh, our first Prime Minister Nehru was very uh, keen on, uh, also means that the same model of development, which is kind of spread all over the world through that process I mentioned earlier, the post-World War II process and so on, is uh, imposed across the country, including on indigenous peoples of the country who have a very different way of living and are you know, not necessarily... Uh, they don't necessarily want that that model of progress and development, but that's imposed across the country. So this is uh, what happens in the first few decades after independence uh, for a whole variety of reasons, which I won't go into right now. Um, by the 1980s or the late 1980s, we have a very severe balance of payment crisis. Uh, one of the uh, reasons for this is that a lot of our uh, so-called development model is dependent on fuel imports, petroleum, and India doesn't have too much of its own reserves. So a substantial part of its internal revenues are actually spent on buying fossil fuels from outside. Now that's one, but there are many other reasons also. And uh, sheer inefficiency in the way the economy is, meant, is uh, managed uh, inability to actually handle a huge amount of uh, what's called the black economy, uh, which does not enter into the tax revenues and things like that. All of these and others are reasons why we actually had a severe uh, crisis in the 1980s. And uh, in comes uh, the IMF and the World Bank. And of course, they suggest to us or uh, arm twist us into accepting the same model of what they call structural adjustment uh, or reforms, which they have suggested all across the world. And that is accepted by our government. So in 1991, we move into a new phase of macroeconomic policies in which the Previous attempts to be socialist and relatively self-reliant are abandoned and uh, we enter explicitly enter into the global economy, um, far more emphasis on exports and imports as a driver of uh, growth and development, um, an explicit race with uh, countries like China to reach a double-digit uh, economic growth rate, a much greater shift from away from the public sector, which till then was producing a lot of our basic needs, into the uh, private sector. And concomitant with all of this, uh, the attempt to actually do away with a lot of uh, what was called red tape uh, or bureaucrat bureaucratic procedures for investors to, to be able to get permission to do investments. Uh, and unfortunately, this also meant, and I'll get to that when we talk about impacts, it also means doing away with or weakening a whole lot of the social and environmental regulations that had got built up in the 1970s and 80s. So essentially that's, uh, well, very briefly a history of 300 years, so you <laughs> can't do that in a few minutes. Well, excellently summarized, I would say. Um, would you mind just saying a little bit before we move on about the special economic zones phenomenon and this accelerated phase of extractivism that we seem to see happening today? Yes, I mean, if you look at the very explicit attempt to actually make India, as I said earlier, uh, India's economic development dependent on uh, the global economy so that the export-import, uh, you know, far greater em uh, emphasis on exports, for instance. Uh, what What is it that India can export? 
One is, of course, manufactured goods like textiles, which in any case, since the 19, I think, 60s or 70s, it has been a major part of its export. So that continues. But what had not been happening before this was large scale export of thing, of raw materials, of primary products like minerals and uh, uh, aquatic uh, marine resources. So if you look at 1992, 93 onwards, there's a huge jump in the extraction of minerals and marine products and uh, to some extent agricultural products for the export market. Um, uh, in our book, we give statistics of the kind of quantum leaps that take place in this. Um, in this, of course, then there is no attempt to look at sustainability issues or to look at the issues of the livelihoods of people who are affected by extractive industries and uh, large-scale aquaculture. We do actually see significantly large protests across the country from the 1970s, 80, sorry, 1980s onwards, and especially in the 1990s because of the kind of uh, what people essentially see is the theft of their resources and the displacement of their livelihoods as a result of this. But so, yeah, the, uh, the export of these sorts of products uh, increases significantly. What also increases a lot, interestingly, is the import of uh, waste products. So suddenly 1990s onwards, India becomes a huge destination for the world's wastes. And and of course, they're not called waste, they're called used goods. You know, um, economists and uh, decision makers are very good at twisting words so that they don't sound bad. So everything is goods. I don't ever hear anybody saying anything about bads. Uh, similarly, waste products, uh, very, very hazardous stuff, hospital waste, electronic waste, etc., um, mercury, etc., are are actually brought in as used goods, not as hazardous products and waste. And again, we see a, a massive quantum leap in the kind of both the uh, kinds of and the amounts of wastes that are brought in ostensibly for uh, recycling and and the economic growth in India. So th- these are again just a few examples, but uh, that's the kind of thing that happens. Then uh, lastly. Also, because we're inviting huge amounts of investments from outside and, of course, encouraging our own domestic industry to uh, make these investments, there is a huge amount of demand for land. And that's when in the 1990s and uh, early 2000 onwards, there is uh, uh, this process called the special economic zones that is brought in, um, the model being China, where it first came up, I think, uh, which are essentially, in fact, the first time when they were brought in, they were described by the government of India as foreign enclaves within India, where uh, a lot of the laws that otherwise apply to all of us as ordinary Indians will not apply, uh, labor laws, environmental laws, etc. So these are tracts of land, anything from 10, 15, 20 hectares to uh, 10,000 hectares. And these are lands that are given over to companies, uh, mostly private companies, ostensibly for the for production for the export market. And of course, uh, a country like India, it's not as if these tracts of land are just lying vacant for people to take up. They are agricultural lands, they are grazing lands, they are forests, they are uh, settlements which are already there, etc. So uh, these are acquired and given to companies and people are pushed out or their livelihood needs are pushed out. And what we've noticed is that there are now, I think, about 400 or 600 uh, special economic zones approved in the country. And wherever they have been set up, uh, much of the land is actually not under use. So this is a bit of puzzle that uh, many people ask that why is it not being used if a company has been given 100 hectares? Why is it not using all of the 100 hectares for industrial production? And of course, it so turns out that most of these, the the production is only a guise. Most of these are actually real estate deals. 
And in India, real estate land is getting more and more and more expensive. So these companies are going to be making a killing just holding on to that land and then either re-leasing it out, selling it, or allowing other sorts of things like tourism, resorts, etc. to come up um, with huge amounts of profits. So that's really the kind of thing that's happening. It's both internal colonization and incidentally, India is also now more and more getting into external colonization. After having suffered 200 years of colonization, now it itself is getting into taking over lands in Africa and other parts of the world for uh, producing flowers to export to Europe or for growing sugarcane or for uh, uh, mining, etc. Um, Ethiopia, for instance, has about half a million hectares already uh, leased to Indian companies for these sorts of uh, production processes. So there's both internal and external colonization that's happening as a result of India's uh, globalization efforts. Great. Well, not great, but (laughs) thanks for your answer. Um, So there's a dominant narrative about India today that's really quite optimistic. The narrative highlights how India is rapidly becoming one of the new centers of power and trade in the world. It's one of the fastest growing economies. Industry is booming. New technologies are being adopted in every sector, leading to a more urbanized and so-called modern economy. And more and more Indian citizens are gaining access to the global consumer middle class. At least that's how the narrative goes. In your book, you paint a much more sobering picture, shining a light on the dark side of globalization in India. You write about the fate of people and communities who are being destroyed or abandoned in India's pursuit of prosperity through globalized development. You also present some devastating evidence showing how unfettered development has ravaged the environment and is simply not sustainable, not for India and not for the world. So give us a picture of the reality on the ground in India. Perhaps you could start by focusing on the social impacts. We'll move to the environmental impacts in the next question. With the social impacts, let me focus on maybe three things. Uh, One is displacement and dispossession. The second is uh, poverty. And the third is inequality. Uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when you have policies like the special economic zones and, of course, all the others where uh, there is an attempt to make investments uh, much easier, industrial investments, developmental investments much easier, of course, uh, for a lot of these, you need land. And uh, that land typically happens currently to belong to marginal farmers or to indigenous peoples or what we call Adivasis or to fishing communities and so on. So there is a spate of since 1990s, a spate of increasing land acquisition taking place. And uh, until last year, what is also very interesting is that the law that was used to acquire land was a colonial law. In its essence, it had not been changed for the last hundred years. It was a law that the colonizers used to forcibly take land away from people. And it's exactly the same law that has been used post-independence in India and increasingly again since the 1990s. Because of widespread protests, it's recently changed, but I'll I'll come back to that uh, later on. So... uh, uh, so this, so one is just very large scale land acquisition. If you look at uh, a combination of the state sponsored development and land acquisition before 1990s and then the globalization driven land acquisition and resource acquisition post 1991, in a combined way, the recent estimate that we have for the number of people physically uprooted from their lands and houses is 60 million people actually physically displaced from their traditional homes and houses. If we were then to add the number of people who are actually dispossessed of their resources, you know, they're they're still living where they are, but their forests have been taken away or their water has been taken away, etc. 
that would run into much larger numbers. Nobody really has a figure on that. So that, number one, is the, the sort of social disruption, displacement, dispossession scenario that we have. The second is uh, is the issue of uh, uh, poverty. Now, of course, the government claims that all of this is, is happening because we want to rapidly remove poverty in India. That's the single biggest uh, justification that is given both for the pre-1991 state-dominated ones and then the post-1991 sort of privatized uh, policies. And we've given it a detailed explanation in the book on how poverty has not really significantly gone down especially compared to the fact that we're trying to actually do this for the last 60 plus years. The only way in which you can think poverty is going down is by manipulating the figures of what poverty is. So firstly, there is a serious problem in the sense that poverty is defined only in terms of primarily in in monetary terms, uh, how many rupees it takes to actually live above the poverty line or be below the poverty line. Whereas what we say is that if you're actually deprived of any of the basics in life, clean drinking water, clean air, uh, not just the amount of food, but good quality food, nutritious food, and of course, the conditions for good health, then you should be considered poor. And if you take all of that into account, according to us, something like three-fourths of the country population is still poor. Even if you were to take the World Bank limit of uh, World Bank, uh, I think now it's 1.25 or $1.5 dollars a day kind of thing, Anything between uh, 50 to 60 percent of India is uh, is poor. So uh, by any stretch of imagination, poverty has not been significantly changed. If anything, in some parts of the country, it may have become worse because people who had free access to water or to forest resources uh, for their food, etc., have been increasingly deprived of even that. And they don't have the money to buy the replacements from the market. So that's poverty. The third thing was inequality. As across the world, in India too, inequality uh, is significantly rising. This is something even the government admits. I think if I remember uh, the statistics in the book well, currently the richest 10% of India owns more than 53% of its uh, wealth. The poorest 10% have less than 0.1% of its wealth. I mean, there's a huge, huge inequality. You don't need statistics. You travel around anywhere in India and you see the incredible differences in the way in which people live, what access they have to basics uh, and so on. And there has been virtually no attempt by the government to do something about this. For instance, I guess the shining example of inequality in India is a single family owning a 27-story building in Mumbai. Now, what government in the world which claims to be fighting for equality and and still claims to be socialist in some sense would allow something like that to happen? So uh, one quick follow up on that for me, Um, you know, I read recently that, you know, India's urbanization trend is projected to really explode in the next few decades from something like 340 million to some 590 million by 2030, 40% of India's total population. Now, clearly, um, you know, you just talked about this huge dispossessions happening across the country in the name of development. Presumably, all of those dispossessed people um, go somewhere, and the, the flood of development refugees into urban areas is one of the consequences. So, commonly, urbanization is described as just sort of this inevitable or natural phenomenon or attributed to people's aversion to the hard work of farming. But it sounds like that's not exactly the most accurate description of the process. Yeah, uh 
Yeah, as current trends go, uh, statistics you mentioned uh, seem to be what we're on course for, and it's, it's extremely scary because as it is, our cities are uh, are pretty uh, horrible in terms of living conditions and so on, especially for the poor, but for generally for everybody in terms of pollution and traffic and so on. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so one big, big reason for this, of course, is the dispossession and displacement that I mentioned. But the other big reason for it is it's sort of insidious dispossession, which is the complete neglect of the rural economy. There has been a systematic dispossession of farmers, especially small farmers, uh, not just from their lands, but from the conditions of uh, self-sufficient or uh, relatively prosperous farming, which they could have had. This has happened, for instance, as a result of the so-called green revolution policies in India, where farmers have been pushed more and more into high input agriculture so that you need fertilizers and pesticides and seeds from outside and irrigation, everything coming from outside. And you're, you know, you're just completely at the mercy of either the state in the past and now the increasingly the market, the private companies. Uh, they simply cannot cope. Um, production does not keep pace. The prices that they get in the markets are not adequate. And eventually they go in more and more into debt. And as we have seen, about 250,000 to 300,000 farmers have committed suicide in just the last 10, 15 years uh, as a result of this kind of process. So we, we are seeing that the, the rural economy, especially the agricultural rural economy, is in severe crisis. And that's another big reason why people are flocking to cities, hoping that they'll get some jobs at least. Um, so, yeah, so the whole trend. Now, we have when I speak about alternatives, I'll talk about how we don't think it's inevitable. This could change. Um, but as of now, yes, this is the situation. Some people say that moving away from villages into cities would actually even help the environment because uh, forests will regenerate i mean people's pressure on on lands and waters in the in the rural areas will will actually reduce but that's actually nonsense because if you look at the long distance impact of a city dweller uh, compared to a villager it's far more so it's a less obvious impact but it's a far greater impact so everybody moving into cities is not necessarily going to make the environment certainly much better Maybe now we can transition into a, just a brief survey, maybe a snapshot of the, the main environmental costs of this, this whole process we've been talking about. Yeah, so the, the process of globalization, I mean, the social impacts are fairly clear. The environmental impacts are even worse in many senses. I can go on for a long time about the environmental impacts, but let me give you two or three recent studies which look at it from a more national perspective. Of all the agencies, the World Bank uh, released a report which said that if you take the disease and soil loss and other impacts of the current development processes in India, then ecological damage is knocking off something like 4.7% of economic growth. Now, currently, our economic growth rate is about 5.5%. So if you were to take, uh, and they say that this is a conservative estimate, they also admit that they have not taken into account a whole lot of other ecological damages. We are actually, in that sense, negatively growing. There is no net growth. Even if I were to accept that growth is good, there is actually no net growth. The second study, which was uh, 2009, I think, uh, was by the Global Ecological Footprint Network. And they uh, showed that if you look at overall figures in India, We are now the third largest ecological footprint in the world after the U.S. and China. And more alarmingly, that we are in a very broad sense, we're already twice over the biological capacity that we have. So if you were to put the water and the forests and the soil and everything together, 
and what capacity we have for sustaining human life, we're already using two times that. Uh, in effect, taking away from both current generations and the future generations. Uh, across the country, the levels of pollution, the levels of mining wastes or industrial wastes, so polluting waters, the destruction of lands, the erosion of biodiversity, the destruction of mangroves and forests and so on is, uh, is extremely alarming. There are hundreds of reports showing what's happening. You cannot think of the environment as being expendable. It's it's the life basis for all of us, and it is especially the life basis for hundreds of millions of uh, farmers and fishing people and uh, indigenous people and so on. But that's exactly what's happening in the name of development and globalization right now. So discourses of globalization treat the processes we've been discussing as inevitable, unstoppable forces, and generally accept the notion that there is no alternative to global capitalism. Your book, forcefully contests such inevitabilism, both by exposing the policies and interests that have actively created globalization and by presenting a broad alternative framework for thinking about and enacting a different strategy. Could you introduce our listeners to this alternative framework, what you've termed radical ecological democracy? So far, I've been talking about the depressing part of the scenario, but uh, what we also see across the country is uh, people in India are not taking things lying down. They're not accepting any of this as inevitable. So there are actually literally thousands of initiatives across the country where uh, both in villages and to a lesser extent, but also in cities, people are actually coming up with solutions to the problems in, in their lives, which are in a very different framework from the current dominant system. Let me give you two or three quick examples. Um, so if you take uh, water, um, the conventional model has been that you build big dams and you transfer water from so-called high water availability regions to low water availability regions. What has happened in places like uh, Rajasthan and Kutch, the driest parts of India, is that people have shown that even with the tiny amounts of rainfall that come, you can actually build local harvesting and distribution and use systems which provide adequate livelihoods and adequate conditions for agriculture, etc. The same with agriculture. The conventional model has been uh, the green revolution, which I mentioned earlier, with high levels of chemical inputs and external hybrid seeds and so on. Whereas dozens of initiatives around the country have shown that you can actually do sustainable, self-sufficient plus surplus farming through organic means, through completely localized uh, inputs of uh, local natural fertilizer and so on, and uh, your own seed, complete control over your own seed. So you're actually building not just food security, but also food sovereignty. The same with small-scale industry. We have examples uh, in many parts of the country where people have shown that with things like traditional handicrafts or new products which are needed in the market, the local economy in the village can be revived so much that not only people stop moving out of the village, but in fact, people who had earlier moved out begin to come back. So you actually start seeing a reverse migration which is the point I was making earlier, that the so-called inevitability of urbanization is only there if you accept the current model. If you start looking at these initiatives and start facilitating them, you could well reverse the process of migration, at least to a very large extent. Now, what is underpinning these sorts of initiatives is a body of principles which we've tried to enunciate. Uh, because I mean, no single successful experiment can simply be taken, transferred somewhere else, and, and it works. Because in India, there's so much diversity of ecologies, of uh, cultures, of uh, ways of living, etc., that you can't do that kind of direct transference. But what you can do is to learn the lessons and the principles and transfer those principles so that people can do similar kind of things in their own context. 
So what we find is is the following. Um, number one, that for the basic things in life, which is water and food and sanitation and uh, the conditions of health and the conditions of learning and housing and shelter and food and clothes, there is absolutely no reason why this cannot be produced in a localized way. So the localization of the basic economies and the basic social cultural needs for living, uh, it, ha- it is already happening and it can happen in a much greater way. Secondly, um, the process of direct democracy. So currently, India is, like all other democracies, is a representative democracy where we vote once in five years and then we hope that those we voted into power will do the right things for us. And of course, as we realize, very often it doesn't happen. So a lot of these initiatives are actually saying we will take power in our own hands. To paraphrase a a slogan that one of the villages which has achieved this kind of self-governance in central India What they say is that we elect the government in Mumbai and New Delhi, but in our village, we are the government. So essentially, all decisions that are pertaining to all the the lands and resources in their village, including even most of the law and order issues, are decided by the entire village community, the Gram Sabha, as we call it. So direct democracy or what we call radical democracy is is a a second major plank for this. The third major plank is economic democracy which means that the processes of production and increasingly also the processes of consumption are in the control of the producers and the con- and the consumers. They're not in the control of companies or the state, which uh, is able to uh, dominate uh, what happens. So, for instance, the kind of prices that farmers get for their produce um, should be much more, should have much more of a voice of the farmers themselves. And this is beginning to happen through things like uh, farmers cooperatives and farmers companies where they're able to negotiate often directly with consumers what kind of prices they should get. And of course, then the consumer's interest also comes into play and you negotiate through that. There's no middlemen, there's no state, there's no, you know, reliances and Walmarts, uh, which are intermediaries. So that's the economic democracy part. Of course, there's many other angles to it, but I'm making it simple. And finally, of course, and probably the most important, the ecological sustainability part. So that in a lot of these initiatives, they're actually explicitly taking into account the fact that we do have ecological limits, that none of these processes can happen in ways that you're trying to perpetually grow and thereby and thereby cross these ecological limits. So it's these four planks, economic democracy, political, I mean, radical uh, democracy or or political decentralization, ecological sustainability and uh, social justice, sorry, social justice. So, I mean, I I didn't mention that much, but of course, we should never forget the fact that both traditionally and in modern times, India is a highly stratified, highly unequal society, highly exploitative society. And so also the attempts at trying to actually create greater equity, greater social justice, gender justice uh, between uh, justice between equality between castes and so on and so forth uh, is also part of this thing so social political ecological and economic planks we put all of these together into a framework that we call radical ecological democracy which is very simply put a process by which every person and every community is part of decision making in ways that are both ecologically sensitive and socially equitable. Uh, That's the sort of broad framework that we've taken based on the actual real life experiences that are happening around the country. I wonder if you wouldn't mind highlighting a couple of other examples that you consider to be some of the most inspiring or the most encompassing of the radical ecological democracy framework. Um, You mentioned, I think it was, were you talking about Mendeleka before the village you had referred to? Yeah. Well, uh, let me 
start with Minalika itself because apart from the governance thing, they have also more recently reversed 200 years of colonialism by taking back control over 2,000 hectares of the forests surrounding the village through a new law that uh, that Indian government has brought in. And I'll come back to this issue that the government is also not a monolith. You can actually force some good policies and laws through it. But using this, they have actually, as I said, taken control over their forests. They have stopped a paper mill from coming and destroying their bamboo. And they are now doing their own sustainable harvesting of bamboo. And through that, they have earned uh, 10 million rupees in the last few years, which they've put into a village fund and are using to make sure that every every household has energy security, uh, livelihood security, water availability uh, and other basic needs. And also recently they've done something which is pretty revolutionary. They have actually every farmer in the village has turned over his or her land to the commons, which means that the entire land of the village, the forests and the agricultural land and the settlement is now part of the commons and all decisions are taken through consensus by the entire village community. That's one example. The other one I could give is an interesting combination of food sovereignty and gender and caste justice which is in Andhra Pradesh in South India, where uh, about in 70 villages, the Dalit women, uh, Dalit are the most oppressed uh, of India's society. They were what used to be called the untouchables or the outcasts. Uh, so Dalit women, marginal farmers, which means they're triple disprivileged in the in tradition. Uh, they have joined together, formed uh, unions and uh, revived about 70, 80 traditional varieties of crops uh, gone completely into organic farming, shared their resources with each other, done small-scale localized water harvesting, and linked all of this up to a localized market system. And through all of that, they've actually hugely improved the lives and livelihoods of uh, thousands of families. And also through that, the women have become far more empowered so that the kind of traditional gender injustice that they used to face is much less. And as Dalits, the kind of social injustice they used to face has become significantly less. So even so-called upper caste farmers, the big farmers, are coming to them to ask them how to make their agriculture more sustainable and more prosperous. These women now run their own community radio that goes to about 200 villages. They run their own school because they don't believe that the conventional schools give their children proper education. And they make their own films. They've already made something like 75 movies not just on, on their own work, but on all kinds of other sort of social, ecological, <coughs> developmental issues. So it's a process of empowerment uh, and sustainability and self-sufficiency, which is quite remarkable. The third example I'll very quickly give because it's it's from a government agency, which is unusual. In central India, in the state of Jharkhand, is a attempt to revive about 15, 16 traditional crafts of indigenous people in that part of the country through an initiative called Jharkraft. And essentially what they've done is to provide the conditions by which local cooperatives of uh, handloom weavers and silk producers and so on can uh, get back into their production processes. They can do some design modifications so that uh, they're able to sell better in the market and they get the opportunity for setting up showrooms where they can actually sell their products. Through all of this, in just about six or seven years, about 250,000 families have got better employment and more secure livelihoods. Um, so just imagine if, we, if this could happen in six years, if in 60 years we had done this kind of process, taken these sorts of examples, I don't think there would have been any poverty in India. But, uh, of course, we chose a different model. I remember reading the book being 
relieved to reach that section of the book after the the dismal <laughs> first half. Yeah. However, I did want to ask, you know, it seems like the dominant system that we're up against is quite powerful, has a lot of momentum behind it. Um, do you think that radical ecological democracy or localization really have a chance against this system? Are local initiatives of the sorts that you've highlighted, are they enough? And if not, what can be done to scale them out, you know, uh, especially on the political plane? And in that, maybe you can also get into the role of the state and also global resistance movements even. Yeah, no, I think uh, right now these initiatives are small and not powerful enough to even, I mean, it's it's okay, it's convenient for the establishment to, in that sense, let them happen. In a few places where they do really shake up the local establishment, of course, there's a there's a feedback by the state or by the corporations that are affected. But by and large, they say, well, it's okay, you know, let them be. So, yes, they are not currently in that sense powerful enough to actually shake the system as a whole. There are three or four things I think that are needed for that. Number one, uh, these initiatives are somewhat scattered and many of them don't even know about each other. So there needs to be an attempt to actually bring them together on common platforms and also common platforms which cut across sectors. So it's not just the sustainable agriculture folks who are getting together and the gender rights people that are getting together, etc., but actually across these different sorts of movements and initiatives people are getting together. So we're actually starting that this year in a process that we call the Vikalp Sangams or the Alternatives Confluences, where we will try and provide a sort of platform where people can get together, exchange ideas, constructively challenge each other, synergize, offer each other skills and expertise, and become a bit more of a political mass. This then relates to the second point about how do you actually become, how do you impact the politics of the country? Now, there has traditionally been a reluctance in social and environmental movements to actually get into politics. Um, I think that's beginning to change. People are addressing political forums much more. Uh, we have some hopes in new formations such as the you know, so-called Amadmi Party, which some of which has come out of social movements, but also being able to sort of uh, challenge and address the uh, other mainstream parties through uh, forming much greater alliances, through actually coming together, such as the National Alliance for People's Movement, various uh, workers' unions, and and so on. Um, so eventually we will have to then not just strengthen the localization of power, which of course is crucial, but also begin to impact the way national politics works. Um, that's the second thing. Third, yes, uh, resistance movements around the world. Um, I think there is an attempt to actually increasingly build alliances with resistance movements uh, through forums like the World Social Forum and so on. Uh, but I think... Uh, not enough, not nearly enough of this is happening. And one reason for that, again, is that we've been reluctant to actually cut across boundaries. We don't so easily build alliances, not just with foreign institutions, but also if it's not an environment, if it's a human rights movement, then as, as an environmentalist, I'm sort of reluctant to cut across my boundary and reach across. Uh, that's beginning to happen more and more, I think, needs to be furthered. Uh, we should definitely take lessons from some of what's happening in some of the Latin American countries, sort of larger political changes that are taking place, and of course, resistance movements like Occupy, etc. So I think, I, I think we'll see much more of this happening in the next few years, which provides the hope that transformation will happen. I don't personally think that uh, a radical ecological democracy kind of world will come within the next few years. I think it will take much longer. 
but we will see the process moving towards that direction uh, soon enough. Many of our listeners from the industrialized global north are engaged in what might be called relocalization initiatives. For instance, local food movements in the north are creating alternatives to global food economy based on more direct links between producers and consumers. Initiatives such as the community-supported agriculture programs, regional food cooperatives, urban farms, farmers markets, local food infrastructure, and, and similar. The local power movement is creating decentralized community-owned renewable energy systems that are even starting to successfully displace large fossil fuel corporations. And there are many other examples in the areas of local worker cooperatives or community finance and banking and so on. just wanted to get your assessment of these kind of localist initiatives emerging in the global north. Do you see any notable similarities or differences between these initiatives and the radical ecological democracy initiatives that you've just spoken about? What can these movements learn from each other? I think there's the in terms of the principles, I mean, this is what I meant earlier, that uh, it's very hard to replicate one initiative somewhere else. But the principles uh, seem to be fairly similar. I don't know very much about many of what you mentioned, but whatever little I do know, uh, there is very strong similarity in the principles, the principles of, uh, you know, localized self-sufficiency, direct democracy and so on. But also the principles of, and this is where maybe there's a bit of a difference uh, sometimes, I'm not sure, is the issue of consumption. I don't know how much of the, how many of these movements, especially in the, in the West, in the North, uh, are able to deal with the issue of consumption. And that's going to be a big issue here. And we are in that sense fortunate in the sense that a significant amount of our population is not yet in the overconsumption stage. Uh, the middle classes are increasingly getting into it, but most of the others are not. If anything, there's underconsumption. So we're, we're uh, maybe have a greater opportunity of actually being able to start discussing, talking and, and building what I call a sustainable consumption line, which uh, I think not just I mean, every individual, every community needs to actually start considering that. I would think that at least the environmental movements I know of in the West have not really been able to tackle that issue because the West is so far gone down the line of consumerism that it's very hard to actually start challenging it. But maybe some of these local movements are. The issues of simplicity, the issues of what is enough for living, frugality, etc., etc., are things that have to come up. Um, I think there's a great deal of cross-learning that we need. The big challenge is going to be to build the languages, and by languages I don't simply mean English, Hindi, Gujarati kind of thing, but the sort of terminologies that are used, the cultural understandings that we have, to build the commonality of language by which we're able to actually meaningfully exchange with each other. I think that's a huge challenge. But again, that is something that's beginning to happen. So there's lots to be done. The more we're able to showcase these initiatives, the more we're able to actually bring up the principles of the alternatives, uh, the more we will have people getting together and becoming a powerful force. Well, Ashish Gotari, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Alex. You've been listening to Local Bites, a podcast series from the International Society for Ecology and Culture dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Join us next time for another episode of Local Bites.